0: Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand, and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello, Australia in the World podcast listeners. Welcome back to part two of our double episode with Duncan Lewis. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University, and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Now, if you haven't listened to part one of this interview, I highly recommend you check it out first, especially because the topics covered there, Duncan's career and the challenge of terrorism, provide valuable context for this discussion today on foreign interference and the structure of national security policymaking in Australia. With that said, let's return to the conversation.
1: As the terrorism threat seemed to become more manageable, a new challenge emerged, foreign interference and espionage. In Australia's case, we've seen the concern centred on China and in the US and Europe, Russia has been implicated. Duncan, you quoted in a recent essay by Peter Harcher as saying they, that is the Chinese, are trying to place themselves in a position of advantage. Espionage and foreign interference is insidious. Its effects might not be present for decades, and by that time it's too late. You wake up one day and find decisions made in our country that are not in the interests of our country. I've also seen newspaper reports quoting you as describing foreign interference as an existential threat to the nation, although I don't think that's quite what you said in the Lowy speech that Darren referred to. So could you just take us through how you think about foreign interference in Australian politics and how you describe its impact? Hmm.
2: Alan, it probably is no surprise that ASIO and myself as the the then Director General of the organisation would have a fairly early and acute awareness of the issue of foreign interference because indeed that was the reason ASIO was established 70 years ago and uh, we are celebrating that 70-year anniversary this year. It was evident to me not long after I took over that there was a growing issue of new and quite extensive foreign presence in Australia. We've always had, uh, or certainly since um, European settlement, of course, we've had foreign investment, and we always will, by the way. I'm not opposed in any way. I'm a supporter of foreign investment. But it was evident that the foreign investment that was coming into the country off a pretty low base was coming from new sources, and, of course, one of those was from China. It was coming off a low base. Nothing wrong with that. And it was going into very useful ends here in Australia. Nothing wrong with that. That coincided with a dramatic increase in foreign students, for example, in the country. And again, uh, not a large proportion of those are Chinese students, but there are many other foreign nationals involved. Again, absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's a positive. This is very good. It's good for our knowledge base in the country, for our learning, it's good for our institutions. It's very good for those foreign students that are receiving the education here and carrying those values and that knowledge with them for the rest of their lives back into their own communities. So I'm enormously supportive of that. But it became apparent to me that there were some points of exposure. And because, you know, I come from, well, at that stage, I was in an intelligence background, I understand very well how a nation state, were it so minded, would be able to use that kind of presence in order to progress its own interests and that that might on occasion be done at the expense of the country where you're exerting the influence. In other words, it can be done if you wish it to be done and if you as the country hosting these presences, the, you know, the presence of money or the presence of students, the presence of uh, diaspora, the presence of all those kind of presences, if that's the right English expression, <laughs> that we have here, then I think we needed to pay due attention to that. Now, again, it was a little bit like the terrorism thing in that you can very quickly start the horses running. Well, the hairs running, I'm mm. mixing in my metaphors mm. here. You can start the hairs running very quickly with these kind of observations. I became particularly focused when I noticed the foreign investment that was going into critical infrastructure and there was a second issue to this which was foreign money going into political parties. And these two things stood out to me as being issues that we needed to pay attention to. And I had many discussions, obviously, with government during those periods. And we, again, a little bit like the terrorism journey, we then embarked on a series of legislative and regulatory adjustments in order to ensure that intelligence and security agencies were equipped with the authorities and the powers to do what needed to be done. Another complication which has kind of magnified all of this is the advent of cyber security, Because when you look at the legislative measures that have been addressed in the last four years or so, much of that has gone to the cyber issue. It's to do with the TOLA, the telecommunications and other legislative arrangements, legislation. It went to the issue of encryption this very difficult, and, and I'm happy to talk about this at length, but this very difficult community conversation that we need to have between the obligation of government to protect the community and the right of the individuals in the community for privacy. Mm. Now, many would run around with their hair on fire saying these two things are in stark contrast and contradiction. One, You can't have both. I don't agree with that. I think there is a landing point on this but it requires a journey. There's a conversation to be had within the Australian community about this. I think the conversation's underway now. I think there is a much heightened awareness in the community about the vulnerability of cybersecurity, but the journey end has not been arrived at, so there is still some distance to go on this. So going back to where I started, if you take the issue of foreign investment you take the issue of uh, foreign contributions to Australian political parties, you take the issue of the enormous exposure that tertiary institutions in Australia have to the foreign student dollar, and you have a look at cyber and the ability to extract through that medium massive volumes of information this is to do with IP theft and all of those sort of things. If you put all that together it's quite a powerful cocktail and it requires a modern and sophisticated understanding and response by government and I must say that I have been very impressed with the way in which the government has responded over the last few years to this that they have passed legislation which has from my point of view, been helpful. Much of it has been contested and will be, continue to be contested. I know that the legal profession in particular was very exercised about some of the legislative measures around encryption and so on. It's just one example. There are others. I mean, I get it. I understand the issue of civil liberties, but this is the point I was making about the discussion between the obligation of the state to protect and the right of the individual to privacy.
1: And that's only going to get more difficult, isn't it, with things like AI, the capabilities of uh, AI growing? I think so. I think so. And,
2: and, you know, without getting too heavy and philosophical, this all goes back to the issue of what is the truth? I I think we are having, as as a species, we're having difficulty managing what is the truth because we have so many inputs now. There is so much noise there are so many ways of transferring that noise to the population that it's increasingly difficult. I mean, fake news, goodness me, it's part of the lexicon now. But if you'd mentioned the words fake news to me sort of 10 years ago, I would have thought you were slightly deranged. You know, what, what are you talking about? Whereas now it's it's part of our lives.
0: Well, there was a lot in that in that first answer, Duncan, so if I can sort of try to break it up into a few different pieces. And I was very interested at the beginning of your answer, you sort of made reference to some similarities with the terrorism issue. And I wanted to start with drawing some contrasts. In 2015, you warned on the terrorism question that teenagers were being radicalised quickly. And you issued, quote, call to arms to families and communities to provide the first line of defence against Islamic extremism. And you've talked about that importance in in the podcast so far today. Now, foreign interference issues relate to a very different segment of society. And you mentioned political parties earlier. And I think back to the widely reported fact that you gave a briefing to federal directors and secretaries of the major political parties about some of the security risks posed by foreign linked donations. And of course, then you have top executives in commerce and industry. And of course, you've got the the Chinese Australian community. So my question is, what would you say is the equivalent of the first line of defence? in foreign interference, the challenge that we're facing today?
2: Uh, Darren, community awareness. Community awareness is the first line of defence. If we can create that, we'll have a very strong bastion to protect us. But that is a journey which is in progress. I have been a little surprised. I've addressed boards around Australia for the last five years. I've made a gone out of my way in order to address boards of many of the large ASX companies Mm. and international operations here in Australia. I've addressed public sector boards here in Australia. And when I first started doing that, I was astonished at the relative lack of awareness of the exposure of that enterprise to foreign influence. And I suppose it's not surprising in a way because many of the people that would be sitting around those board tables would of course be people that are in business and business with countries that could bring foreign interference to Australia mm. has been pretty good. Mm. And particularly if you think about China, mm. where you know the trade has been burgeoning, Australia has done extremely well out of the bilateral arrangements, and I understand that. The difficulty for me has been to get this thing properly positioned where there is a community awareness which will protect us, but not a community paranoia which will do damage to our well-being in other areas, and particularly economic, but there are others. I mean... It's quite clear to me, and, and we can go directly to the issue of China at this stage. Uh, Peter Harcher has written an article in the last little while, uh, mm. the quarterly essay, uh, where I spoke with him as he was preparing his uh, his material for that. I think it's enormously important that the Australian community get a more sophisticated view of this. And there are absolutely Two sides to all relationships, you know there is advantage and there is caution to be exercised that 's how the international system works, and that applies to even close allies. you know you, you have a relationship which is typically closer than most, but you need to be cautious that your own national self interest will at some point come into conflict, and you 'll need to make decisions on that basis so I guess the frustration for me has been to get an understanding in the community which is sufficiently sophisticated to be able to say relationships with a country like China are fantastic, we are doing extremely well, we're all prospering as a result of this, this is a good thing and at the same time We need to be very careful. In the case of China, of course, it is a country with a political system, and this is not about the Chinese people. This is about the Chinese government. Mm -hmm. It's It's a government which has a very different way of operating than our own. It's running, arguably, on a different set of values, and I think we have every right to make sure that our values in our country are being protected, preserved, and progressed and that if there is any attempt made to try and counter that, that we are alive to it. But as I say, trying to get this balance right is very difficult. And I know that as the Director-General of Security, each time I have made a comment, there has been um, you know, enormous media interest and the headline comes out that you know China is a great threat to Australia. Well, mm. that's not what I'm trying to convey at all. I'm just trying to convey the fact that one needs to be prudent... That for every opportunity, there is inevitably some sort of downside. There is some sort of threat that needs to be addressed. And to get that right balance between those two things is critical. And when you think about it, a mature relationship between countries really depends on the settling of that kind of, of balance and that's even with countries with, with whom we have much similarity and, you know, we have similar systems of government or similar sets of values and things. Even in those cases, the most friendly of situations, you do need to achieve a balance between advantage and the threat that might present
0: If I can pick up on something you said a little earlier in the balance question and the dangers of of paranoia, and you've spoken earlier uh, in this discussion about your efforts to preserve ASIO's relationship with the Muslim community, and you've spoken out to try to avoid the entire community being tarred with the terrorism brush because that makes ASIO's work harder. I'm wondering if you could talk us through some of the dangers of the analogue in this discussion. You know, if paranoia gets taken too far, how does that make or could it make the government's and in particular ASIO's job harder in, in doing its work in, in this space?
2: Foreign interference, as you know, comes from can and does come from a number of sources. So it's not entirely... About China. We've got to be careful about that. We need to understand that. I think that any diaspora community here that may be associated with a source of foreign interference Mm. is one that needs to be engaged by organizations like my former one, ASIO. It needs to be engaged by the body politic here in Australia. It needs to be engaged by the security, the policing branches of our society, and so on. So I think. There is a difference actually between the Islamic community and the dynamic that was working around that and terrorism, and say the Chinese diaspora mm-hmm. here in, in Australia. They are different communities for all sorts of reasons, mm-hmm. and I think we need to be cognizant of that. So I don't I don't think you can just transfer uh, you know w- the kind of dynamic we had with the Islamic community here in Australia, the Muslim community, and and um, the Chinese community. They're different. But the kind of principle, if you like, uh, still pertains that the people who will know most about what is happening with any sort of Chinese activity, whether it be investment or education or whatever it happens to be, will likely be the Chinese diaspora here. And of course, they are and we have mistakenly, I think, for years thought of them as one sort of homogenous group. They're not like that at all. There's as many views in the Chinese community as there are in, in what I might describe as the kind of Anglo-Saxon community here in Australia or the mainstream. You know, Everybody has a view, as they should. So I think we need to be careful. But having said that, there's no doubt that the Chinese community is is a community where I think it's important that government develops a very good relationship and a close – this is the diaspora I'm talking Mm. about now. The other thing, of course, that is unusual is that in the case of the Chinese government, as a point of law, it regards all expatriates as Chinese citizens, Mm. still enduring Chinese citizens. Now, because that is a point of law in the Chinese milieu, that's a bit of a complication. And it's as much a complication for the diaspora here as for anybody else, I'm sure. But that is something that is a particular challenge.
0: If I could ask a question now about these new national security and foreign interference laws that you mentioned earlier passed in 2018. And I want to sort of frame my question around the following three claims, let's call them. Number one, uh, there have been no prosecutions that we know about, and only one notice has been sent to a potential agent of influence. Number two, that no groups uh, linked to the Chinese government's United Front Work Department have registered. And number three, arguably the most significant decision in this domain that has been made so far, would be the cancellation of the residency visa of billionaire Huang Xiangmo, and that that was done under um, discretionary ministerial power that already existed. And so the question I have for you is, should we infer anything from these claims about the extent to which these new laws are fit for purpose?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Darren, that's a very good question. The I am a bit concerned about the sudden rush in the media in the last week or two about, well, we need to get prosecutions. Mm. Certainly, I mean, that's why you pass legislation in order to enable security agencies to address these issues and you would expect prosecutions to happen. The difference between foreign interference and terrorism could never be more stark than in this area. If you can imagine a sort of a, a graph, um, like a, a polygraph going on here, terrorism has is very febrile and, and the time between event and response and so forth is compressed. In the case of foreign interference, the sine wave on this is very long. It's a very long sinusoidal wave. And so something might happen now that doesn't have impact for a decade. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to be careful not to oversell the requirement to suddenly deliver a whole bunch of prosecutions. Um, I mean I understand the political dimension behind this and the sort of that that kind of imperative. But the fact of the matter is that for a police force – and I'm not a policeman – but a police force requires – a certain amount of time to get a brief together and the nature of the foreign interference environment is such that those briefs would not be settled on quickly. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an issue there. In the case of registration, the FITS legislation is the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme. I think like many complicated bits of legislation that might take a little while to settle. It it certainly has created some anxiety and some confusion. Um, you know, I mean we even had a situation I think at one stage where the Catholic bishops of Australia wanted to know whether they had to register because they might be uh, advancing ideas from Rome mm. on a Sunday morning from mm. the pulpit, you know. I mean that was not what the fits legislation was designed mm. to do at all. It's purely to make transparent any foreign advocacy that you in your professional life would be doing so that if I come into you know some meeting here in Australia, whether it be public or private, and start advocating some line, that it is apparent to those present or it can become apparent to those present that I am actually an agent. And I don't mean that in a, a clandestine sense, but I, I, I'm a an advocate for some foreign Authority, some foreign power. And I think that's... that's. I mean... And the other thing is, of course, this gets confused with influence versus interference. And really, foreign influence is what diplomacy is all about. I mean, that's what many of us, Ellen and I, we've been involved in this, you know, for, for much of our lives. It's not about that. It's about the more sinister issue of foreign interference. That is, you're influencing to a point where you are forcing a position onto those that you were trying to influence.
1: But it, it sounded, from what you were saying, that if you were, say, an Australian of Greek heritage who believed that it was absolutely impermissible for any state that wasn't Greece to describe itself as Macedonia, that you would be doing the bidding of a foreign country, but that, but you you would also, in a democracy, be entirely entitled to hold that view. So how does the line yeah, get drawn?
2: I'm not sure that's a good a good enough example, Alan, because I would think in that case, there's no question that the individual could hold their views. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I wouldn't be challenged by that at all. If, however, there was some impact on the Australian government about that or there was some impact on the say the big end of town that would affect our economic performance around that then I think that would be different but the the mere holding of a political view and the espousal of a political view is not is not what's at issue here mm-hmm. if you are for example uh, representing the let's say the french government in even the submarine program. I mean, let's take the submarine program. Now, if you're an agent of the French government as part of that program, I think it's necessary that that be registered and it be understood uh, because otherwise you could pop up anywhere in our body politic and start advocating in a very covert and covered way to get an outcome that would be satisfactory for the French government. Now, as I say, there's nothing wrong with the advocacy. It's the clandestine nature of it. We, we've always said this. It, there is absolutely nothing wrong with advocacy and holding different views and espousing them and so forth. All we're asking is that there be a transparency so that if you are representing a foreign entity, that that can be discovered. I think that's that's the issue.
1: Okay. okay. A f- follow-up question how do you feel about calls for the vetting of parliamentary candidates before general, <laughs> general elections?
2: <laughs> yeah. Look, I don't think there is a possibility, let alone that it's unwise, but I don't think there's a possibility in our system for vetting of that nature There has been, as you know, in Canada recently a a measure passed, a regulatory measure, whereby ministers in particular that work in and around their National Security Committee equivalent are subject to vetting. I remember when that first came in, I raised my eyebrows and spoke with the Canadians about how that could possibly be managed. I mean, in a way, it kind of goes against the whole essence of of the democracy that we live in. We have all sorts of people in political office in Australia, and always have, and I hope we always will. I don't think that vetting by security agencies is a proper way to go forward. It would be, for example, very subject to interference. And if it was not, it would be asserted that the intelligence agencies were interfering. What is the level of risk you're willing to carry? How much of a risk is too much? Can you get uniformity of that understanding through time so that a risk that you accepted then was still accepted in 10 years' time or has the risk gone up or down? I just think it's unmanageable. And during my time as the the Director General of Security, it was one of the most tricky parts of my job was the issue of the body politic engaging with communities which, you know, might present a threat, you know. Should I, politician X, meet person Y, or would that be a risk? Mm. Well of course ASIO has no role at all to play in that by law. I would never be able to offer a view. For ASIO to come to a view that somebody is a threat, there is a requirement to do a threat assessment and to formally raise an adverse security assessment, and that is a very formal and legal process. I think it would end up in tears. People would end up with the egg all over their face in all sectors of the community. And I think we're much better to have political parties exercising what I would describe as due diligence, as any corporation should, any corporate entity should, any public entity should exercise due diligence and inquire into the background of those who aspire to public office, to elected office, and make sure that their own backyard is clean now, I'm not suggesting that it will be foolproof. There will be occasions when, when things will slip through the cracks. I get that. But then that's up to other processes, law enforcement processes. If, if you've got people in elected office that are breaking the law, it's very clear that they are subject to the law. And may that ever be. They must be subject to the law. So, yeah, but it is uh, something that's on the radar. People are talking about it. And it does seem a bit odd, doesn't it, that public office holders, that is bureaucrats, are required and others in the community who have access, you could be an industrialist, who have access to secrets are required to have a clearance, whereas elected office holders are not. But I'm sufficiently old-fashioned to think that elected office holders have a special place and it's outside of the security clearance process as we currently exercise it.
0: If I could take a step back to ask a broader question about the broadening of the concept of national security uh, in our society, and if I can do it with reference to one of the more controversial elements in the new espionage and foreign interference law, which was the definition of national security by reference to Australia's, quote, political, economic or military relations with another country, which I took to mean any other country, so would you agree that national security is broadening in a way that is shrinking the arena of normal politics in society? And so because more and more activities are being seen through that lens and then administered and acted upon through that lens. Hmm. And if you do, I mean, what are the consequences of this? Is it, are we, when do we go too far or is this, is this just the world we live in right now?
2: Hmm. We've addressed two very philosophical issues. One was this issue of the obligation of the state to protect and the right to privacy for the individual. And the second is the securitisation of public policy, which is the point you're asking me now. I think there has been a securitisation of policy, and some would regard that as bad. I don't. I think that it's been a necessary adaptation to meet reality. You see, if you look at interference, you can interfere now in foreign places far more effectively than you ever could in the past. I mean, there's always been foreign inter- people spying on one another and interfering in people's business. For, for, you know, as they always say, it's the second oldest profession. But what is different is that with the electronic medium, you're able to have influence quicker. It's, it's instantaneous, effectively, as soon as you pass the message – it reaches every point in the globe instantaneously, so you can do it. It's, it's like ubiquitous. It's not necessarily specifically focused at one point of the Earth's surface. And it has a volume. You know, because of these um, bots and so forth, it has volume that you can just pump out. And I, I think that has profoundly changed the, the environment in which public policy is being made. Now, that's compounded, Darren, with another dimension, and that is – and this is a completely different tack now – Australia's position in the world. We are, in my view, in a different position because it's a different world than we have been at any other time of my working life. I mean, I grew up basically through the Cold War – And, you know, a post-war child who grew up in the Cold War and then for the last 15 years or whatever, I guess, we've been confronted with the issue of international terrorism. But all the time that that's been going on, globalisation has been manifesting itself. And globalisation has changed, in my view... Many of the ways that human beings relate to one another, my kids, you know, on their devices and so forth, they engage with other human beings electronically, they engage kind of ubiquitously, instantaneously. Yeah, just take our society the way it's changed planning. There's no requirement to plan. Even socially, you don't have to plan because you can do it on the run as you're running around with your mobile device. So I think things have changed. Ideas can be transported from, you know, Bankstown to Birmingham in in the flash of an eye. Uh, so any idea that is generated anywhere in the world can now be spread instantaneously. So I think all of these things have actually changed the environment in which public policy is made. And while unquestionably, globalisation has provided for prosperity and advantage and it's made us all a lot more informed and more powerful individually than we've ever been before because we can harness information, there is a kind of a downside to this which requires that you have an eye to security, whether it be your private, personal security or whether it be national security. Now, having said all that, I know that there is a strong element in our community that argue that we have over securitized things. We look at everything through the security bubble. But you just think about this. I remember when I was a national security advisor, Alan DuPont, talking about food security. And there was an up- uproar about that. That's outrageous. What are we talking about, food and security in the one breath? Well, now... I mean, where's the last laugh? You know, here we are in the middle of climate change. We've got a massive drought going on here in Australia. You've got all these things going on where food security and the ability of the earth to continue to support the bodies that are on it is being called into question. Alan's always been ahead of his time. (laughs) Hello,
0: Hello, Alan. If I could
2: quickly sort of finish this
0: point off with, a, I guess, another philosophical question, which was I was chatting with a colleague of mine who was a constitutional lawyer, and, and he sort of said to me, look, even if we accept that these laws are necessary, they do represent an expansion of the power and the authority of the security agencies. When will they ever give those powers back? And I'm inferring from your response that maybe this is the new reality when this is, we're in this world for the duration. Is that is that right?
2: Sadly, I think it is the new reality. I I would be the first to put up my hand to reverse it if we could. You know, if I felt that it it was kind of safe to do so, then that would be lovely. But I think it is the new reality. There's been a lot of speculation in the paper recently that, you know, the Australian government has been, in fact, former Prime Minister Keating was talking about this, you know, in the grip of the intelligence community well I I never personally felt that maybe I just didn't see it but I certainly have never felt that the Australian government is a Prime Minister Howard used to say a broad church you know there are lots of people in it with different views and so forth and I haven't found that that's diminished in any way over my time in the national security community and I mean I have the benefit of having sat for with a two-year interruption for a 14-year span in the National Security Committee of Cabinet. So over 14 years, you know, I've watched governments of both persuasions going through their paces. And it seems to me that the reality that each one of them has faced has required, at some point, a security response. And some of that has been in new areas, It is difficult. I remember as the National Security Advisor (laughs) becoming involved in live cattle exports. I, I, I mean, I still struggle to find any... I knew nothing about live cattle exports, so I still know nothing about cattle. But it was then argued that what is the national security adviser doing working in this space? And I never did have a satisfactory answer. <laughs> that was that was stretching it too far. But the bushfires was a good example. I mean, I remember going with Prime Minister Rudd down to Melbourne in the you know the immediate aftermath of the Melbourne fires. And again, people were saying, what's the nexus between this? But it was very useful for Prime Minister to have his national security advisor there because I could, at very short notice, request and marshal military resources, other government agency resources, and so forth from the centre of government. And you yeah, know, this always brings us, we haven't discussed this yet, but it brings us back to the issue of do we require a better sort of coordination right in the centre of government? And um, that that's probably a discussion for another day, but it, it is a, a very
1: important issue. No, I think it's a discussion for now, Duncan. Well, I can do <laughs> the, it, I can the, do it uh, now if we've got uh, the time. I, that was going to be my next <laughs> question, actually. Look, you've been involved in a whole lot of different ways of structuring the Australian intelligence and security community. You know, structure is never entirely the answer to everything, but some ways of doing it have obviously worked better than others in delivering the outcomes that the Australian people want. What conclusions have you come to on that uh, question? What are the sort of underlying principles that should govern the structure of the national security community? Hmm. This is a discussion we could have all day but it is really very important and I guess I do
2: have something of an unusually long insight into this I forget who it was one of those Roman scholars or somebody that said every time we meet with a challenge we reorganise it was to do with the Roman army I don't think we've moved on much as a species since then, that every time we seem to be challenged with a, you know, a new phenomenon, almost a reflexive response is to reorganise. It gives the, as the, uh, the old Roman, I think he was a Roman, advised us, it gives the illusion of progress. And, it, you know, it, it's something that you can hold up and, and show that you are responding. And from time to time, of course, it's very necessary and produces excellent results. But it is my view that the great departments of state in Australia are an essential part of how we go about delivering security. We do it through the great departments of state. The Department of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, in my personal view, has a special place in this because the Prime Minister, and I remember saying this to several Prime Ministers, the Prime Minister is the Minister for National Security. Now, it's not written down anywhere, but the Minister for National Security is the Prime Minister, and it is only the Prime Minister that can easily and fully marshal the, all the sinews that are required from time to time for security responses. The great agencies of the Australian security apparatus, the Defence Force, or in fact my own former agency, ASIO, various agencies, the federal police, these large historic traditional agencies are powerful because they are large and historic and they've evolved over time and they have a maturity about them, about the role they play. I've always found personally that every time you try to kind of drive them, they're a bit bovine. They're like a like a, trying to drive a bull. You can't drive them and to carry the analogy on, like a bull, they need to be led by the ring through the nose. Uh, sorry, that, that is that is playing light with a very serious relationship between the centre of government. <laughs> and a very powerful image, but, but it is. And I know that during my time as a national security advisor, I enjoyed, I think, the confidence of the large agencies whereby I could put a request to them to conform to some particular measure that was required, and they would know full well that I was speaking either on direct behalf of the Prime Minister, or if I wasn't, that it was at least a considered view from the centre of government of something that needed to be done. And I can't think of any particular case where I ran into intractable difficulty around that. So it, it is interesting. I mean, we've had any number of reorganisations and so forth, and each one of them sees you know, the media asserting that power is shifting from here to there and we're creating new czars and, and so on. But I think that a central coordinating mechanism in the Prime Minister's Department is an area which, after many, many years, we created, and then after a few years has been to an extent, dismantled. And now we have, as a sort of a part response to that, the creation of the Home Affairs Department, nothing wrong with that. As an increase in the role and responsibility of ONA, creation of ONI, nothing wrong with that. But we still don't seem to have what I describe as a settled system of coordination from the centre, which is directly under the control of the Prime Minister, the Minister for National Security. So national security is still, I sound a bit contradictory here, I was going to say it's still atomized. That's probably not quite right because, it, look, it's tighter. By the time I got into ASIO back in 2014, it was as tight as I have ever seen it. We had high levels of cooperative work between agencies. It's as high as I've, I've ever seen it. But I, I still think that there's a gap. That's
1: at the operational? At the operational level, yeah, 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 yeah it
2: was. But, you know, this issue of the National Security Committee of Cabinet, I mean, I remember talking, must be nearly 20 years ago now, with senior bureaucrats about whether there was a requirement for a National Security Council, some sort of apparatus under that. And when you think about it, to a degree, that National Security Advisors Office that I was running all those years ago was in many respects the secretariat for the NSC. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically what it was doing. And while the members of the of the office were doing that, I, as the NSA, was acting very much as the prime minister's representative and the connection between the prime minister as the minister for national security and all of those agencies that were the component bits of it. So in, in a way, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit sad that that has not progressed. And I think that it is still a gap.
1: Look, that leads me... Quite neatly, to a final question. As you said, you sat in the National Security Committee of Cabinet for 14 years with a uh, short break. You've served prime ministers and ministers of different political persuasions and different personality types and so on. I'm not going to ask you to personalise this so soon after your retirement. But at a time when there's, I think, near universal agreement that global political leadership is at a low ebb, I want to ask, from what you've observed at such close quarters, what you see as the most important qualities of political leadership? And as my high school teachers used to say, illustrate with examples, if you can.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The first thing that I think leaders, and it doesn't have to be political, this is leaders in any walk of life, is honesty. I think it's actually having a view and telling it as you see it. It is a bit of a shame, I think, that our political environment now, it's not just in Australia, this is right around the Western world, has become extraordinarily sort of ideological. Ideology in a political environment, in my opinion, is like the refuge of rogues. You know, you can dive back and rest on and in your ideology and not have to explain why you hold the view or whatever. It's just its ideological. And I think that's a bit of a shame because our democratic governments, you know, right through from kind of the French Revolution times, have have really depended on contested debate and and a mature debate and respect being shown across the aisle and, and so on. I think that's been challenged a lot lately. We are in a very unusual period of history mentioned earlier on about fake news you know the truth and look again call me old-fashioned but I think the truth will out at the end of the day and I think it's important that it does but right now we're quite challenged around that with fake news and social media and all of these ways in which human beings are able to communicate with one another that were hitherto unthinkable You know, I could go through a number of kind of qualities here, which was the point of your original question, I think as well as honesty, the ability to communicate frankly, the ability to negotiate, to come to settled agreements. I think if you look back at history, the job of Prime Minister of Australia is a very, very difficult one. It is the leadership of any country, but I think our Prime Ministers have had enormous challenges over the years and they will into the future. And by and large, of course, they've done a great job. I've worked for six Prime Ministers and I don't know one of them that hasn't given to the job every ounce of their energy and their exertion and approached it with a forthrightness and and honesty. I mean, I think that we have been blessed in that regard, and at least our political system is such that it hopefully will continue to generate a long line of leaders like that. But currently, there's much debate going on in the community about the role of the public service in creating public policy. I do have a concern about the centralisation of public policy generation up on Parliament Hill. There, I can cite to you that when Edmund Barton was the Prime Minister, he had two staff. He had a political advisor and he had a secretary. That that was code at the time for typist. Mm. And he was not only the Prime Minister, but he was the Foreign Minister. Now, of course, Prime Ministerial staff number, I think, in the mid-40s or somewhere thereabouts. Ministerial staff are at about 20 or something like that. And we have huge numbers of political advisers up on the hill. Now, part of that, of course, is a reflection of the complexity of life, including the legislative complexities that confront us. I get that. But are we that more complex than the numbers between two working for Edmund Barton and the numbers working now in that area? Our system is such, accountabilities must not be shirked by ministers that if decisions are taken up on the hill, even though it might not be by the minister, that the minister will need to take responsibility or the arrangements need to be changed in such a way that political staffers then become publicly accountable for what's going on. Now, I don't know whether that's, that's probably unrealistic because of the nature of, of politics, but, but I think there is some soul-searching to be done within the community around that. The public service itself needs some very serious soul-searching because I think that... And I notice this particularly in the EU. You know, the EU is criticised enormously, but the level of expertise among the bureaucrats in the EU, the actual scholastic achievement of the bureaucracy in the EU, I found astonishingly high... And I think we in the public sector here, and as I keep saying we in the public sector, it's hard to shake the habit, but we do need to work on the levels of skills that we have in the public service. I made at my valedictory speech, I made a comment about whether there was a need, for example, for a public service college. Now, we can debate whether it is or not, but if you have a look at some of the great public services of the world through history, they've commonly had a college. You know, France has arrangements for that, the British have arrangements for it, not not in the United States to my knowledge, but many of the great bureaucracies of the world have some sort of college. And you might say, well, that's a bit of a waste of money, but what that does is creates uh, cohorts of people that know one another, they know one another's strengths and weaknesses, they are able to leverage off one another's strengths and weaknesses in a way that perhaps strangers may not be able to. And look, it's not to diminish in any way the work of our university, so they're doing a wonderful job. Um, I, I don't have any issue with that. But I just wonder whether some sort of more focused public service training might not be helpful. And I made those remarks, I've always made those remarks with a backdrop that as a military officer, I spent nine years on the Crown's tick being educated and, you know, in a, in a public service environment now, if you've got nine days, you'd be lucky. Um, so I, I think that's something that might need to be addressed. I mean, we've tried. We've got at this university where I'm sitting right now, the National Security College, and we've got the Crawford School. We've got we've got mechanisms for preparing our public servants, but there's no kind of sense of oneness about it all. It's kind of disaggregated.
1: Great. Duncan Lewis, that's a sort of mildly optimistic notes to end on. It's been a great privilege having you in here. Many thanks for joining us.
2: Alan, thank you. you. Look, it's been a privilege. I have had, as you suggested at the start, the fortune of a very varied career. I have great optimism about Australia. I think we, we have in this country the human resource and the natural resource that will enable us to continue as we have for the last couple of hundred years. But we do have the natural resource and the human resource to prosper, but it will require some very, very astute leadership going forward. I think we've got it.
0: And that's all for this episode of the Australia in the World podcast, part two of our interview with Duncan Lewis. We want to thank AAA intern Isabel Hancock for researching audio editing. XC Chong and James Hain for research support, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and Julia Arends for technical support in studio. Talk to you again soon.